in this last, last meeting, I want to answer the question that might have been on your mind since you heard the conference theme, gospel-centered leadership, why? Why gospel-centered? Why not just Bible leadership or wise leadership or is this a trendy effort or what, what, what does, why gospel-centered distinctly? I want to endeavor to answer that for you. We're going to look at four reasons gospel-centered leadership matters. Three of them we will deal with rather quickly, and I really want to zoom in on the fourth reason and spend our time there. And I want to suggest it to you right out of the gate. The point that I really want to make in this final session is that gospel-centered leadership calls us to serve, to serve in our homes, to serve on our jobs, to serve the people whom we lead. And it's only the gospel that enables us to serve people instead of use them for our own idolatrous pursuits. That's what we're going to look at in this last session, primarily in that fourth point. But again, I want to answer the question, why gospel-centered leadership? Is this just an effort to be trendy, to sort of connect fellowship in the gospel with leadership and, okay, gospel leadership? Or is this essential biblically? And I would suggest to you, and will endeavor to prove to you, that gospel-centered leadership is essential. Without centering our leadership on the gospel, we lose everything, biblically speaking. And I want to remind you once again that gospel-centered leadership is leadership that is derived directly from the gospel, the message that Jesus died for our sins. It's leadership that conforms to the contours of the gospel, and it looks in practice like the gospel. And it's leadership that is for the purpose of the gospel, so that people are reconciled to our good God. We're called to this in our homes, at school, younger guys, in any capacity of leadership. And like I said, I want to give you four reasons why we can't just take good practical advice, but in fact, we need to connect it to the cross. Reason number one, the New Testament writers model and commend gospel-centeredness in all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. In verse 1, Paul speaks about his coming to Corinth, and he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, because I decided, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we know that Paul spent significant time in Corinth. We know that he wrote them two books. And we know that he deals with things that go beyond the scope of John 3.16. We know this. We know that Paul talked about lawsuits between Christians. He talked about human sexuality. He talked about marriage and singleness. He talked about caring for poor people. He talked about abuses of the Lord's Supper. Did he never talk about anything except John 3.16? Well, Don Carson, in his excellent book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, explains for us what this verse means. Carson writes, quote, What Paul means is that all he does and teaches is tied to the cross. 
He cannot long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered, end quote. And we see that not just in 1 Corinthians 2, too. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul calls the gospel the thing of first importance that he delivered to the Corinthians. He exhorts us in Colossians 1, 23 to never shift from the gospel. In, Rome, uh, in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, he writes to the believers that he's eager to preach the gospel to them who are in Rome. And he says the same thing, or a very similar thing, in 1 Corinthians 15, he retells the gospel to those in Corinth to whom he had told the gospel quite a bit earlier. Paul never shifts from the gospel, and he exhorts us to never shift from the gospel. Here's a test for you. Here's just a practical question. In your thinking about leadership, in the leadership philosophy that you aspire to follow, if you're a, a businessman, if you're a husband, if you're a dad, if you're a friend, as you think about your leadership, is your leadership a philosophy that a Mormon or a Muslim or an unsaved secularist could apply and be successful? These are people that, no disrespect to them intended, these are people that do not have the gospel. Mormons do not believe Jesus needed to die for their sins. Muslims have an esteem for Jesus, but it does not rise to the esteem that we ought to have for our Christ. And secularists certainly don't believe the gospel. So ask yourself the question, the leadership materials that you follow, would they work for someone who does not have the gospel? And it's a real question, brothers, because one of the leading books in the Christian world on leadership, a million-copy bestseller on leadership, written by a former pastor and leadership expert, has a foreword written by Stephen Covey, the Mormon. Now, with all due respect to Dr. Covey, who knows leadership in the secular world and is a very spiritual man and a very moral man, but not a Christian. How is it possible that a non-Christian can endorse leadership taught by a Christian? I'll tell you how it's possible. If our leadership philosophy is neutered of the gospel. But if we derive our leadership from the gospel, and if we make sure our leadership conforms to the gospel, and if we lead for the sake of the gospel, Mormons will want nothing to do with that. Nor will secularists nor will Muslims. And so I want to suggest to you that if our leadership is to conform to the model of the New Testament writers, it must be gospel-centered because they are gospel-centered. Second, why is gospel-centered leadership important? The gospel is the power of God. Look up, let your eyes run up the page just a little bit to the end of chapter 1 here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul writes, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I know that's a sentence fragment, but what I want you to notice is he calls Jesus the power of God. There is one other thing in your Bible that is called the power of God. Do you know what it is? It's the gospel. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, Paul says with the same phraseology, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Two things in the Bible called the power of God, Jesus himself and his gospel. There have been many powerful men who have been servants of the Most High God. Elijah and Elisha who prayed for a double portion. Paul and the other apostles, men of significant spiritual power, but none had the power of God resting on them like the sun. And by analogy, there are many displays of God's power in the world around us. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis. But the greatest density of divine power in this world today is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why must our leadership be gospel-centered? Because if we want it tapped into the power of God, it must be centered on the gospel. Why do we need gospel-centered leadership? Because the New Testament writers model it. But secondly, because the gospel is the power of God. And if we want our leadership charged with all the power of God, we must wire it to the gospel. Anything less is a deficient power. If it makes good sense, it doesn't have the power of God behind it unless that good sense comes from the gospel, which leads us to the third reason. The wisdom of God in the gospel opposes even the very best wisdom of the world. Why can't we just adopt secular leadership models from the unsaved world and apply them in our homes as servants and workers on our jobs, as husbands and fathers in our homes, why can't we just apply good common sense principles from the world? Well, on the one hand, we can and we should, but only insofar as they derive from the gospel. Amen. Let me make this point more explicitly connected to the scriptures. Isaiah 55 verse 9 teaches us that heaven and earth are closer together than man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Our thoughts, God says to us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, for as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Isaiah 55, verse 9. Even our very best ideas, brothers, will not build God's kingdom because they're just not wise enough. But the scriptures don't teach that, let me say this positively, God's wisdom isn't simply different from man's wisdom. The gospel demonstrates that God's wisdom opposes man's wisdom. Right here in 1 Corinthians, look at verse 20. Has not God, uh, verse 20, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 20. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The greatest mind in the universe puts on display the highest exaltation of his wisdom in the gospel. And that message opposes, it militates against the very best of human reason. Once again, D.A. Carson is so helpful. He writes, quote, How wretchedly foolish it is to honor with our allegiance the siren opinion makers of our day if they have no real understanding of the cross. To us has been given the fantastic privilege of benefiting from God's immeasurable, wise plan of redemption. Shall we, this, this question, let this grip you, brothers, as you evaluate where you learn to lead. Here's his question, quote, Shall we trade this awesome heritage for a mess of faddish pottage? End quote. That's what we get when we read good to great and apply it to our churches. Is the wisdom of God resident in the wisdom of men? No, absolutely not. And Psalm 1 verse 6 indicates that in the final day, it's not just the wicked who will perish. Psalm 1 verse 6 indicates that the way of the wicked will perish. Let's not try to build with our leadership with a way that someday will cease to be altogether. Three reasons why we need to be gospel-centered in our leadership. It's the model of the New Testament writers. The gospel is the power of God, and the gospel is the wisdom of God. And so if we want to leverage God's infinite wisdom and develop a leadership model that will last forever, we must model it after the gospel. This is, I think, the point to observe, that no matter how hard we try, we can't make our leadership cool and acceptable to people in the world. We just can't. Amen. The gospel is, by its nature, foolish. And so wise, gospel-centered CEOs are men who, in their leadership on the job, adopt a philosophy of leadership that looks asinine to people who do not know the gospel. Right. It's just the way that it's going to be, brothers. Right. Let's just nail that down in our hearts. But I want to lead now to this fourth reason that the gospel must be central. Only the cross, only the cross enables us to serve our followers rather than use them. And to make this point clearly, we're going to have to understand something about how our heart works. So turn to James chapter 4. Only the cross enables us to serve our followers rather than use them. James chapter 4. Verse 1 says, what causes quarrels? James 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Notice in the first few verses what James says about our heart. Your passions are at war within you, he says. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. James indicates here, as the other scripture writers do, many of them, that our heart is a constant factory of desire. We desire every, every moment of our lives. And James isn't talking specifically about evil desire. He's just talking about desire. Desire is to your, to your soul what hunger is to your stomach. You just feel it from time to time and it must be satisfied. It craves satisfaction. And so we look for things that will satisfy our desires. Our hearts are like black holes continually pulling at everything around and within us, desiring, craving, needing, demanding. If at any point in your day you want to know what desire is controlling me right now, just ask, what am I wanting right now? What defines paradise for me right this moment? Or what thing, if I were to lose it, would mean hell for me? Those are some ways to discern what's going on in our hearts. And it's interesting, it's not just the writers of the Bible that know this. I'm going to use an illustration here that might get me fired. Uh, in the Harry Potter books, <laughs> Harry and Ron Weasley make their way, this is in the first book, Harry and Ron make their way into a room at Hogwarts Castle that's dusty, rarely used, not frequented by the students or the faculty at the castle very often at all. And uh, Harry Potter steps in front of this mirror that he sees there in that room, and over the top of the mirror is the word erised. Spell that in your head. E-R-I-S-E-D, erised, it says over the top of the mirror. And he looks at his reflection in the mirror, and in fact, it's not a simple reflection of Harry Potter standing there in that moment. It is Harry. But it's Harry with his previously deceased mom and dad alive, affirming him, touching him, hugging him, smiling at him, showing through their faces and their gestures the love that they have for their son. And his heart wells up with longing for mom and dad. 
And he summons his friend. He says, Ron, come here. Look at this mirror. And Ron Weasley steps in front of the mirror. And if you know anything about these stories, which you shouldn't because they're not Christian and they're bad for you to read. Um, <laughs> I've just read about them. I haven't read them. Um, Ron steps in front of the mirror. And instead of seeing Harry Potter's parents, Ron sees himself as a Quidditch star, which is the sport that all these wizards and humans who want to be wizards play. He sees himself as a Quidditch star being lauded by all of his classmates as this great athlete who is the star of the whole school. And the, the, the two young students hear a noise behind them in the room and they turn around and it's Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster of the school. And Dumbledore steps forward and says, I see you've found the mirror of Erised. We can't put it anywhere out in public because if we do, people who see their reflection in front of this mirror will never leave. They'll waste away. They'll stay right here. See, this mirror reflects for you the desire of your heart. See, they're kids' books. They're not real subtle. Erised is desire backward. This mirror reflects for you the deepest desire of your own heart. And if we were to leave this mirror out in a public place, people would see the deep desire of their heart, long for it so badly they'd waste away, never be able to move from this position right in front of this mirror. Well, the author of the Harry Potter books is onto something fundamental about humanness. We long, we crave, we want. And the Lord Jesus comes to us and says, I, not all these things are the desire of your heart. I am the desire of your heart. But how this applies to leadership is very, very important for us to grasp right now, brothers. Think hard about what leadership does. Now that you understand, or if you've previously understood this, about your heart, what, does, what happens to the human heart constantly craving, constantly desiring, constantly looking to be satisfied when you're put in a position of authority? What happens to all of that desire, all of that craving? You know what happens? Most of the time, leadership means more. More money, more authority, more opportunity, more responsibility, and more potential that you will satisfy the illicit desires of your idolatrous heart. Let me just give you some names to see if, in fact, you don't agree with me. Ted Haggard. Larry Craig. Elliot Spitzer, Bernard Madoff, Rod Blagojevich. You see, leadership presents us with unique opportunities to satisfy the desires of our heart, doesn't it? It puts us in a position where there are people at our disposal, there's extra money coming our way sometimes. There's extra, there are extra accolades to leadership. And so every one of you, by God's good grace, is a leader by virtue of your manhood. You are a man, therefore you are a leader. You will be in position to, rather than serve people with your leadership, use them to satisfy the cravings of your own idolatrous heart. Paul Tripp comments on these verses in James chapter 4, and he says this, if my heart is ruled, this is from Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, an extra, excellent book, an extraordinarily good book. Paul Tripp, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, if my heart is ruled by a certain desire, 
There are only two ways I can respond to you. If you are helping me get what I want, I will be happy with you. But if you stand in my way, I will be angry, frustrated, and discouraged when I am with you. When my heart craves some satisfaction, money, accolades, affirmation, credit, pleasure, I will use everything in my life to get what I want, including those people who should be dearest to me. My wife, my children, my friends. You see, brothers, heart cravings, heart idolatry turns us into men who are far worse than Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, who killed people that they didn't know. Heart idolatry causes us to step on and trample and abuse the very people closest to us to satisfy the desires of our own idolatrous heart. And leadership puts us in a position that is unique with all the potential we have to use rather than serve people. That's the bad news, and it's bad news. And here's the good news. The good news is, though leadership puts us in a unique position to satisfy our heart idols, the cross has unique power to destroy the idols of our heart. Amen. I want to, as, as we really zoom in here now, and really this is the conclusion. This is the conclusion of the whole, the whole conference as far as what cross-centered leadership is and what, what I'm going to say. This is it right here. This sums this will bring it to a conclusion. Heart idolatry tends to take one, two, or three specific forms in our heart. Let me suggest them to you from James chapter 4. Sometimes idolatry is living for a substitute treasure. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have. Verse 4. You adulterous people, using there the language of marriage, I should be your heart's desire, is what the Lord is saying to us in that place. Idolatry sometimes takes this form. We put a substitute treasure in the place of God, something that we think will satisfy our heart, something that is worth living for, something that will give us immediate satisfaction or ultimate satisfaction. And you know these temptations, don't you? It's not just our temptation to manage our sexual drive, although that one's pretty key, isn't it? Looking for immediate satisfaction in something other than Jesus. Do you know what that is? It's heart idolatry. It's worshiping a treasure that we think will satisfy other than Jesus, who comes to us and says, if you drink this water, you will thirst again. But anyone who drinks the water that I give will never thirst. That's a stunning promise to an idolatrous heart that wants to be satisfied. And so we have heart idolatry that takes the form of substitute treasure. But there's a second form of idolatry, not just substitute treasure. Sometimes we submit ourselves to a substitute Lord in our idolatrous worship. Look at verse 7. 
James writes, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Sometimes idolatry in our hearts isn't craving a substitute treasure. Sometimes it's serving a substitute Lord. And boy, as men, don't we know this well. We will sell our soul to something and serve it according to all its demands if we perceive that it has the power to bless us. How many men sell their soul to money? And they do whatever necessary. They build their schedules around it. They build their lives around it. They sell their weekends for it so that they can have money. What are they doing in that place? Well, it's probably an amalgamation of substitute treasure, but it's definitely substitute Lord. They're serving something other than the Lord. And it's idolatry. Substitute treasures are idols. Substitute lords are idols. But there's a third form of idolatry. Sometimes we look to a substitute savior and we take refuge. We look to some other thing to protect us than Jesus. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You know, it's a rough world that we live in and that's, it almost trivializes it to say it that way. It is a difficult world that we live in and we know we are not big enough to protect everyone precious to us. I can't guarantee that I keep my job and you probably can't guarantee that you keep yours either. We can't guarantee that our children, that we ourselves, that our wives, that those closest to us don't get sick. I mean, disease is an enemy. Poverty is an enemy that threatens us. And what do we do when we hear those threats and feel them breathing down our neck? When we look for a protector, we flee to some refuge. And some people, knowing the threat of the decrepit, you know, depraved body that we have that's breaking down, some people give themselves to the savior of physical wellness. And they work out all day, every day. And they make sure that they don't ever eat any fats and make sure that, you know, they keep... And, and all of those principles are fine and good and they're wonderful and we want to serve God as long as we can in good health and so fitness ought to be on our radar. But if you look to physical wellness as your savior, you are an idolater looking to a substitute savior, not the savior. You feel the threat of illness and death. And so you look to a savior and you build your life around him, better it, and expect it to save you. Some men fear poverty. They fear it worse than death. And they will sell their soul to their job and a second job and overtime in order to make sure that they are not destitute. They're worshiping, they are worshiping a substitute savior wanting that God of money to protect them from that devil of poverty. 
And if that thing threatens me, I don't know what I would do. And so I need to hold on to the rope offered me by the Savior of good income. Well, you know what, brothers? Those are the forms idolatry takes in our heart. Substitute treasure, substitute Lord, substitute Savior. And the gospel speaks good hope to all three of them. If you look in your heart right now and you feel conviction pressed down on you when, when you hear this, the way I do, if you feel conviction weighing on you as you hear this, the gospel speaks a good word to you and to me. Let me just be perfectly transparent with you. I'm 36 years old. I've been in ministry for a dozen years, only two of them as a lead pastor. Why am I speaking to you about leadership? I don't know either. And a serious temptation in my heart as I prayed and prepared was to labor in my study and do so well that I would get from you credit. I'm just confessing to you. It's a struggle for me. I had to go home last night and repent of a longing to be affirmed. What am I doing? I'm using you to serve my heart idols rather than serving you by showing you the glorious gospel of our Jesus. And the Lord was so good to me this morning, so good to me. Let me show you the verse the Lord gave me. You don't necessarily have to look it up. I'll read it for you. But in my devotional plan, I'm in Psalms. And I got to Psalm 62, and I read this. Trust in him, this is the Lord, trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. And I was convicted and helped in that verse. Those of low estate are a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. That verse said to me, Josh, you're nothing. You and everyone greater than you can get on a balance beam and put, a, put an opposing weight on the other side to see which is heavier, and you could put the weight of breath on the other side of that balance beam, and it would outweigh you and everyone like you with all of their merit. You're nothing. But God is a good refuge. And my heart was humbled and helped and cleansed of that insidious idolatry to come and speak to you about the glories of Jesus for my own credit. And I thank you that you've been gracious and affirming, but I give God glory and praise and I confess before you that the struggles of my heart are the same as yours. So let's take a good, ex a good hard look at the answer to these heart struggles in the gospel. Substitute treasures. What does the gospel say to this? The gospel says to us, you were made for God's glory and only when you live for that purpose will you find the satisfaction of your soul. Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought the pearl. The gospel comes to me and says, if you get Jesus and lose everything else, including credit and approval and pleasure and power, if you lose all of that but have Jesus, you have the pearl. Everything else is worth less. The gospel gives me a better treasure. The gospel also gives me a better Lord. The gospel says to me, the God of the universe must be your Lord. Keeping his laws and serving him is your ultimate responsibility. Repent and make him your Lord. Don't serve anything else. Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel beckons us to the service of a better master. Jesus, who said, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the beck and call of a better master. Money has never beckoned someone to bear an easy load. The gospel also deals with substitute savior idolatry. The gospel does this in two profound ways. The gospel redefines both the real threat and the real solution. See, the gospel tells me the real threat is not my physical wellness breaking down and getting sick. The gospel tells me that cancer didn't send anyone to hell. The gospel tells me that my real danger is the fiery, hot, awesome, just wrath of God who made me and can in an instant cause me to cease to be. And he's angry at my sin, the gospel says. It demeans him. It demeans his all-holy son. And men, if you have a son and anyone has ever insulted your son in your presence, you know the righteous wrath of a father that wants to defend your son. And every act of sin is an act that demeans the son of the loving creator of the universe. The gospel redefines the danger that we need to be saved from. (laughs) But the gospel also speaks a glorious word of deliverance that saves me from that danger. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
there's a Savior that I want to run to. There's a Savior who can save me from the wrath that really matters. Poverty won't mean anything 500 years from now. My friends, don't you want to be saved 500 years from now? Well, then you better find a Savior who has the strength to offer a salvation that endures forever. Substitute, treasure. Substitute, master. Substitute, Savior. All find their match in the cross. So come. Come. Come to Jesus and find him to be the all-satisfying treasure of your heart. The gentle master who wants you to serve him. And the glorious Savior who delivers you from the only danger that really matters. Let me give you one additional application. The implied applications have been examine your heart for these idolatries. Repent of them in front of the cross. But one more application that comes from Hebrews chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. Well, yeah, turn there. Hebrews chapter 3, you need to see this because men don't typically believe this and we have to see this is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like an idolatrous heart. A heart that doesn't believe Jesus is a better treasure. It doesn't believe Jesus is a better master and a better savior. And the writer to the Hebrews says, take care lest any of you have an unbelieving heart that grows up in you. And then he gives us a prescription to avoid that problem. What is the prescription? Go to more conferences? Have your devotions? Memorize scripture? What's the solution to an unbelieving heart that grows up? It's in verse 13. Look at it. What's the solution? We need to exhort one another every day. As long as it's called, as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you are to serve those who follow you, rather than use them, you must. This is not you should or you could or here's a good idea. You must have in your lives friends who love you and know you to speak the truth into you where your idolatrous, unbelieving heart has deceived you. Self-deception, which the scriptures say we have. We suffer from this affliction of self-deception. Self-deception, by definition, is impossible to self-diagnose. You cannot sit there and say, well, I'm not self-deceived. By definition, you wouldn't know if you were. So how do we overcome self-deception? If you're serving 
an idolatrous desire in your heart like a substitute Lord or a substitute Savior to save you or a substitute treasure, if you're leading your life and using those who follow you for a substitute, how are you going to know? Here's how. You have two or three, one good friend in your life who has the freedom and the summons from you to speak truth into your life and say, what you just said does not conform to the gospel. I don't think you really want to believe that. Or what I saw you just do confuses me because I know it doesn't conform to your heart's desire to live out the gospel. Explain to me why you just spoke to your wife that way. Or things of that sort. We must have each other, brothers. And if we speak into each other's lives this way, we will be, for his glory, men who serve in our leadership rather than use the people in our lives. Amen. Jesus, I pray that you would make us free from all idolatry so that we can lead and love for your glory and not our own. Amen.